Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365. Football is stirring slowly from its hibernation. Arsenal returned to socially distanced training today. The government is suggesting sport, and especially football, can lift the national mood. There's talk of quarantined training camps, games being played behind closed doors from June the 8th in a limited number of venues. Now I'm looking forward to football as much as anyone, but I'll be honest, this all seems too soon. What do you think, Seb? Yeah, I'm with you then, Mike. I think the selfish part of me thinks, yes, get it back as quickly as possible. But I don't know, just before we started recording, I was listening to the Prime Minister fail to give any kind of lockdown exit strategy. Clearly, we're not in a position to actually plot our way back to any sort of normality. As of yesterday, another 400 plus people died. I mean, we're talking about football stirring, but industry isn't really stirring. I went out for my sanctioned exercise this morning and it's like a ghost town outside. It doesn't feel quite right to be talking about something as trivial as football. Whereas I completely accept and appreciate the argument that it would probably be good for morale, but whether it's actually the right thing to do, I think that's a bit of a different question. Yeah, you know, you, you're steeped in the game, Adrian. What are your views on it? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one, yeah, because selfishly I want it back now. I want it back yesterday, but it, it doesn't, doesn't feel right. All I'll say is that June the 8th in coronavirus crisis terms is a long, long way away. And if the, you know, the number of people that are dying every day can, drops between now and then, providing it's down to a really low number where hospitals are, are fine and they're coping, then it might be more, more palatable. One thing I don't understand about the plans and you know, understand they're only embryonic at the moment, is... Project Restart. Okay, yeah, Project Restart. One thing I don't understand, why the games aren't being lined up for the regular stadiums in terms of, you know, Arsenal against Newcastle at Emirates Stadium. You know, the, the fixtures to be fulfilled at the right stadiums. There's talk of a number of allocated neutral venues. I, I don't understand that. And I do think that that may be problematic in terms of the integrity of the competition. I know that 
home fans won't be present, but I think home stadium has an influence as well. Players are used to playing on that on that pitch, and it would feel a, a little bit odd to me if we were to resume but not play the games at the stadiums that were meant to be played at originally, if you, if, if you get my drift. I, I don't understand the logic in that. Maybe you guys know something I don't. Well, doesn't it seem, I mean, I, I'm not really under the illusion that sort of the, the appetite to resume is anything to do with the integrity of the competition. I think they're just they're fulfilling contractual obligations. So it seems at, at every point of this, with every theory that I've heard discussed, the guiding principle behind it has just been let's get it done because we don't quite know what's going to happen if we don't get it done and we don't know whether we can afford those consequences so maybe it's that Ed. yeah it just it just feels that you know each stadium will be cleaned and and, and sterilized sterile ahead of the fixtures won't they and then a limited number of people will be allowed in and and that's the end of it i don't i don't see see the reasoning really behind having them at, at, at neutral venues and the other issue of course is, is training Mike I know that Arsenal have, have opened up the the gates to their training centre today which is is the first step obviously and players are just allowed to drive in in their kit go to the pitch and do their routines I think the logic here the only thing the only reason I, I can see why they're doing that now is is to give the players a bit more space bit of privacy to to go and and do their thing on a football pitch with potentially footballs available to them it's not proper training and and they'll come well isn't that the point adrian Mm. you know what they're talking about brighton have been talking about Mm. opening up individualized training sessions yeah and arsenal are talking about well we can have there will be no more than five players on a pitch at any one time yeah that's not going to be real is it it's not going to be real, but it's someone to pass to, someone to knock the ball around. You knock the ball 30 yards to someone and get it back. That's that's progress, isn't it? It's something that you can't do, not unless you've probably got a you know t- t- teenage child that can, can leather a ball to you in the, in, the, in the park. But then again, you're not even allowed to do that, are you? So, so no, I, I can see the logic of it being the first step, but social distance training is not going to work long term. And if... Football is to resume, let's say, in, in early June. The players are going to have to train normally at some point before that. Otherwise, they won't be ready and equipped and, and, and they, they won't be psychologically ready for, for the combat of professional sports. So, so it be interesting to say, look, between now and then, some of these rules will change. But yeah, there's a lot, lot of work to be done before football returns. It feels that way anyway. Yeah, because isn't that the point, Seb, that even with the best will in the world, what we're going to see is a flawed spectacle. Okay, we understand that it's going to be behind closed doors. I think that's inevitable. But also you're going to have teams who, quite frankly, aren't match fit. Yeah, I I mean, I, I don't really know what to expect in terms of the dynamic we know because we've seen empty stadiums before. But the integrity of the actual football, the cohesion of it is going to be very, very odd indeed. Also, like, I, I probably a question for Adrian because obviously he's played. I are we not inviting a situation where we have all kinds of soft muscle muscle injuries because players are going to go from from training individually. Essentially, that that's the equivalent of me knocking the ball about with you in the in the park, mm. Adrian. Mm. Um, mm. To playing what would be something along the lines of a Premier League intensity level game. Yeah. Um, the- so you, I mean, I, I know it's not the point. I completely accept mm-hmm. that. But it's just, it was something I think about this morning. You just, you know, the how how are players actually going to be prepared for this with yeah. 
just a week or two's preparation. Mm. Well, I think it'll be longer than a week or two. I think they'll be given three weeks. And I, I th- personally, I think three weeks is long enough. But but again, providing you're allowed to to train properly and normally, and that and that means be involved in in practice matches, for example. You you have a couple of practice matches on the training ground that can get you up to speed pr- pr- pretty handily. And I wouldn't understand the logic in this if if you if you have to keep your distance throughout in training and then you go into a game that's no preparation at all so so that's that's an issue i do think yeah there there might be a few pulled muscles along the way but what i will say is that this enforced break has given every footballer out there that that opportunity that rare opportunity to get rid of the aches and pains that they have to live with over the course of not just one season but sometimes a whole career they'll be nicely rested and and pretty fresh coming into the resumption so so it's going to be fascinating to watch i i, I just had a, a wondering though like a i i heard my my latest my understanding of the latest plan is there are going to be games every day in whatever format they agree upon now what happens if okay i i, I adrian's absolutely right for some players this will be a sort of a blessing in disguise because they'll have had the opportunity to recover and more of a break than they have done in years but what about players with long-standing issues who are suddenly being asked to play three times a week? What happens if someone suffers a really serious injury as a result of what's happening then? It's, it's quite a rabbit hole, that, in terms of what happens next and as a result of it. Mm. Yeah, well, you, you think about you know, someone like Harry Kane, exactly. who's been yeah. uh, re- rehabilitating. He's going to come straight back into it and will be vulnerable. Well, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you, you, I, I suppose... I suppose the obligation falls on the, the club to manage that situation because the player is their asset. But that puts some awfully valuable players in a very strange and unique situation. So I, I don't, I don't even know how to react properly to that. I'm not sure what the, no. um, I'm not sure what the <laughs> measures are there. Yeah, it's just perspective, isn't it? And and also, the need to get it done supersedes, I guess, players and and, and player welfare. But yeah, there's no perfect scenario, is there? Unfortunately. Yeah, I just want to broaden it, if I could, Seb, just to look at the women's game. It's in vogue at the moment because basically we've got Phil Neville as a lame duck Mm. England manager, which maybe we can talk about in a couple of minutes. But look at the game itself. Thief Pro were talking about an existential threat to the game. You've got players on short-term contracts without much security, that the second tier, it's semi-pro. Is the game, which has been a great success story in recent seasons, under real threat, do you think? Well, it would have to be. I, I've been reading Susie Rack's coverage, not just of the Neville situation, but the coronavirus crisis at large and how it relates to women's football. There's all kinds of other things that I hadn't even considered about this. So obviously, like you say, Mike, there's a, a problem with the, the kind of financial stability of, of some of the clubs, particularly in the second tier and particularly those clubs who don't have the patronage of a major Premier League side. But players are, for instance, are they being denied health insurance and medical cover and rehabilitation facilities and that kind of thing? So I think when, when we say the game is, is under threat, on a macro level, absolutely, of course it is. But on a micro level, people's livelihoods are being altered by this. And that would be my concern. I was wondering if you guys would help me out with something. I, I, so this, this FIFA fund, this £800 million fee, I've heard sort of some very vague explanations for where that's going and how that's being allocated to to governance, to competition, to the longevity of certain leagues. How is this being portioned out? 
this this amount of money. Has anyone read anything specific about that? Well, it does seem to be funding individual governing bodies around the world, but I found it a bit fluffy, to be honest. It's a typical, oh, we need to do something, get some decent PR yeah. out of this, tell everyone it's going to be okay, the $800 million still there. Mm. And there's always a but, isn't there? Well, but how are you going to actually make sure the money gets to the right people, mm. does the right programs, sustains the game as a whole, instead of building up little fiefdoms mm. around the world that FIFA money tends to do? Mm. And I suppose, mm. Adrian, mm. the key will be over here, host clubs, especially in the Premier League, continuing the level of support that they are giving their women's team. Now, you know, Arsenal, your club, mm. have this one club mentality and, and it is pretty seamless. N not many others do. And, you know, I'm thinking of Liverpool, for instance, who, quite frankly, their attitude towards their women's team is that it's almost an encumbrance. And I think that's a, that's a disgrace, frankly. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. yeah. What do you think, um, yeah. Aid? Um, are the clubs, given everything else that's going to go around at the moment, going to take their eye off the ball with the women's game? Mm, well, some might. Hopefully, they won't. I think it would be an extremely unpopular move for clubs to, you know, stop backing their women's teams. In the grand scheme of things, the cost of running a women's team is, is quite minuscule compared to their other outgoings. I think given the popularity given the rise in the sport, then it would be a daft decision to stop funding it and propping it up. A lot of clubs will, will, will treat it as a lost leader anyway. It's not Women's football isn't a money-making machine, is it, at the moment? Hopefully it won't change. I don't imagine it will. I just, I just see it from the players' point of view. I, I feel for them they're in a similar boat, aren't they, to League Two players probably in terms of short careers, lower, lower salaries, everything is up in the air. So many unknowns. It, it, unfortunately, it's it's one of those professions that, that's precarious. And, and I feel for all of the women's players at the moment. But fingers crossed, they will get just as much support and just as much backing as the as the men's teams when we do resume. I, I personally feel that the clubs that are associated to parent clubs will be absolutely fine. It is the independence that I, that I worry about. Yeah, let's let's look at the international structure. Now, the calendar, Seb, does seem really overcrowded. If you look at it over the next couple of years, you've got the Olympics in 21, the Euros in 22, the World Cup in 23, the Olympics again in 24, you've got the Euros in 25, you've got leagues, you've got two cups, you've got qualifying tournaments and other international activity. That's an awful lot, isn't it? It is, and it, it kind of feeds back to my first question, Mike. So when we talk about this big sort of FIFA solidarity fund for women's football or investment or however you want to term it, is it going to the creation of AstroTurfs, which can be used for kids' teams and young girls who are getting into the game, or the creation of yet more infrastructure and sort of tournament infrastructure? Now, like, I, to me, and obviously happy to defer to the people it affects more, the players, the coaches, the staff, but to me, there is a huge gap, an ideological chasm between the amount of football that we're asking people to play and the amount of security that there's an offer to those who we are asking to play it, if that makes sense. 
I mean, it's a theme from the men's game too, but obviously there is a big difference between, you know, asking players who are earning 300 grand a week to do this and players who, you know, don't even have dental cover, for instance, that kind of thing. So I, I would, it's almost like asking the game to run before it can walk. It's If we're talking about second tier clubs going out of business or not being able to fulfill fixture lists, and then we look into the future and we can see the sort of backing up in the calendar, that's, that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't sit particularly well with me. No, I know, I know exactly where you're coming from, Seb. Although, for, for, if you're an international player or an international quality player, you're looking at that yeah. and you're thinking these are great times. You know, you, they're not moaning about it. They, they will be very, very excited at the prospect of being involved in those events. No, I accept that. I accept that. I, I just it, it just concerns me because obviously, as as with men's football, it's the players that we don't see on television mm. that it really affects. You know, it's uh, it's a difficult yeah. one. Hey, from a player's perspective. Mm. I described Phil Neville a little earlier, you know, perhaps uncharitably as a lame duck. But, you know, he basically is is going to hang around until next summer. When you're in a dressing room and in a team environment and your manager has basically said, well, that's it, chaps, I'm, I'm out of here in six months, nine months, whatever it is, that has to have an impact, doesn't it? I think usually it has a negative impact because players think, well, kind of what's the point? What's the point of impressing this person because they're not going to be here in the, in the long term? Obviously, that's a, more of a subconscious feeling than, than something they would put out there. But it's human nature, isn't it? I, I've been there with caretaker managers and it's it, it just feels like a limbo. I don't see the point of it. I really don't. I must clarify, I'm, I'm absolutely no fan of Phil Neffel. I didn't like him on TV as a pundit and I don't really rate the job that he did with the England women's team particularly highly either. I think he did raise standards in a few areas. But ultimately, when it came to the to the competition, he made some abysmal calls, in my opinion. Team selection, incredibly messy. Tactical switches that were unexplained, certainly for, for, from the semi-final to the final, were ardent. And in the press conferences, I always felt, <laughs> I think as journalists, we often feel that managers, you wish that they would say more in press conferences. I think in Phil Neville's case, he always said too much and it made himself you know, sound silly on occasion. And yeah, I'm just, I just, I don't think it's a huge loss, I'll, I'll be honest, to, to the England women's team. And I'm actually quite in, quite excited for the Lionesses in, in terms of who they might target next. So, so yeah, for, for me... I would make the change ASAP. Don't see the point in waiting. Oh, I definitely agree with that. On that succession plan, Seb, some names being mentioned you know, from a personal point of view. If she would take the job, which I actually doubt, I would give it to Emma Hayes at Chelsea, who's always struck me as a hugely impressive, empathetic and knowledgeable figure. The other names in the frame, Jill Ellis... Casey Stoney, who's who's doing very well at Manchester United. Nick Cushing, who was at Manchester City, is now going into their New York franchise. Even Joe Montemuro at, at Arsenal. I mentioned the two guys at the end of that because it does raise the question, do you think the England's women's team needs a female head coach? So 
when when I saw this on our, our list yesterday, I asked a couple of women, one who's actively involved in the game, one who's involved on a part-time basis, and one who just watches, and they all unanimously said yes. Really? Yeah, and I, I can okay. completely understand that. I um, I wanted to defer because I don't, I don't think what I think about it matters that much. I, I, I can make the argument for saying that the most important thing is that the England women's team performs well, and that is a beacon for participation. I completely understand that argument. But I think it's, you know, what matters to the women in the game and, and what, what the what I, I think it matters what message is being sent out. I think also I think the Phil Neville situation has soured the pitch a little bit because obviously he was never actually on the original shortlist and I still don't really understand the means by what by which he got the job. No, he, they, they, they didn't deserve it, did he, on 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 past experience. Well it, it just also seems as if we were potentially heading for the same situation now because all the names that you mentioned, Mike the counter argument is, well, they've all got jobs, with the exception of Jill Ellis, they've all got jobs that they would probably be loath to walk away from. I think that sort of, I completely agree with Emma Hayes, I find her enormously impressive, but she's publicly at least seems very committed to the, the project at Chelsea and seems really to, to want to have another crack at the Champions League, which I completely understand. So I don't know where you go, but I, it, it does seem to be important that it's a woman. Uh, no, I, see, I wouldn't have seen the importance of it but but yeah if, if if these players people in the game are saying that then then that's well worth listening to i mean jill ellis would be the sort of star appointment wouldn't she two-time world cup winner with america i think nick cushion the timing's bad because he's just started that new project in new york i don't see montemuru leaving arsenal the one that i think is too soon for casey stoney even though she's a great did she just sign a new contract aid I, 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 yeah she's yeah. a legend of the game obviously but i, th- I think she's just making a way as a, as a coach at at Manchester United. The one that ticks a lot of boxes is, is Laura Harvey, who is currently in charge of the under-20s in America, but is English, has previously worked with the FA, with the England junior teams, has coached Arsenal a number of years ago. Her CV is incredible, really. Very, very varied. And, and I just wonder whether that, that might be the way that they go. But it's, it's, a, it's a big, big call. Yeah, Phil Neville was parachuted in. It, it kind of worked for a while, but... I think what's happened post-World Cup, when he made those calls in the heat of battle, when he made those team selections, I, I, I guarantee that the women in that in the squad were, were, were scratching their heads. And I think from that moment onwards, they're then questioning his decision-making all the time. Whether he's right or wrong, people will start questioning it because he's created those doubts. And the performances since the World Cup have told me that it's a, it's a, it's a squad dressing room that that they don't respect Phil Neville or believe in him like they used to. Well, it's a tricky old game, as we all know, management. You know, as, as you guys know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at and analysing and assessing the Premier League managers. We've got the final five to get through today. We're going to start with Graham Potter at Brighton. Someone who's come in with a very distinctive way of management you know, learnt in Sweden. I think the fit at Brighton is really good for him. That's a club which is, I think, developing its own strategy. You've got Dan Ashworth there. There is a, a broader brush approach there, and he's got a five-year contract. And I suppose, Seb, is Graham Potter almost like the poster boy for daring to be different? 
in a way, yes. I mean, he's he's brought new ideas. I think I, I find him a very interesting person, which really helps. And I think what's been shown in the past and certainly now is that he seems to relate to younger players particularly well, which obviously fits with a technical director of, of Dan Ashworth's description. From a football side, it's funny because I, I find him quite conflicting because I, I've watched quite a bit of Brighton and I found them enjoyable. Like I found them far more expressive than they were. The caveat being that they haven't actually been more successful. I'd, still, I'd say they're overachieving based on where they've come from. But the kind of the, the ultimate validation for, for Graham Potter's work isn't yet there as much as I enjoy the kind of the attacking style and the expression and, and the sort of the, they were a very, I, I have huge admiration for Chris Hughes and I think he's a far better coach than he's ever given credit for. But they were an inhibited side under him and they were cautious and they were as at different points difficult to watch so we'll see but I, I he's an asset to the league and I'm more than anything else I'm interested to see what he does over a sort of a five yeah, ten year me period. too yeah I love his bravery so bold he's he's used the most formations so far this season I think nine different formations he's made the most half-time substitutions he's got his goalkeeper to take the most short goal kicks we under the new new rule where it can end inside your own area he's He's just completely transformed what was a Brighton team that, that were set up to, to be organised and, and to defend well. And, and you knew exactly what you were going to get from Brighton. Opposition managers really don't now know which what sort of shape they're going to, to come across. But yeah, I, I love his invention. Will it translate to success? Who knows? I mean, we've only really got his time at Ostersons to, 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 to look at there. His period at Swansea was pretty successful, but but ultimately didn't sort of stick around long enough to complete the job. But I like him and I, I really, really hope that he stays a Premier League manager for a while. Yeah. Another former Swansea manager, lest we forget, is uh, Brendan Rodgers. So much in football is about seizing the moment, making the right move to the right club at the right time. There was a real danger that there would be a sense of anticlimax after his time at Liverpool, which went so far, but not quite far enough. He almost rehabilitated when he was at Celtic, almost reinvented himself. There was none of the the Brendanisms, the David Brentisms. I think he learned from that. He told me recently, uh, with a sort of an arched eyebrow, the one thing I learned was to listen more and to say less. <laughs> He's put that into operation at Leicester mm. and we're seeing a new model emerge there, aren't we, uh, mm. Seb? I think so. I think I think it needed to happen. Obviously one of one of your one of your books captures Brendan at his worst, perhaps Mike, with the way in which he used to expose himself to ridicule. I think he's tempered that. I think he's wound that in a little bit, which is really good news. And you know what, talk about doing things, making the right move at the right time. Was there ever a better, a better opportunity for a coach of his, of his profile than Leicester City with that squad composition and with that group of players? I don't think so. I think he made an incredibly smart decision. One thing I want to say about him is I've been watching sort of the the team of the year votes come in and the sort of the informal ones that are going on, on online. And it's as if the second half of Leicester's season didn't really happen because I've still got a bit of a concern about how they perform against the very best sides in the league. I think he's built an excellent flat track bully, but I am a little bit alarmed by how inhibited and how much inferiority some of those players seem to acquire when they go to places like the Etihad to Anfield. You know, whenever they face a a true top six side. Um, 
So I think that's a little bit of a challenge. I, in terms of personality, full marks. He is he has really reinvented himself, like you say, Mike. Mm. In terms of the actual pure footballing operation, still yeah. some question marks. Oh, for on me, that, man. I think he, he just overthinks it sometimes. He's a very smart guy, I think, tactically, and sometimes against the big teams, he, he just overdoes it in terms of his preparations, and that, I think that sometimes transmits to the players who are caught then playing less of a natural game and, and more of a, a structured one designed to to sort of nullify the opposition. I rate him. He's got 11 players there that have, that have started 20 or more Premier League games. So he's got an extremely settled team, which I think is is a good thing. It's a luxury to have. And, and because of that, he's got a lot of hunger on the bench. And I, I did a piece this week. I don't think it's out yet for the Premier League. And looking at in-game management and the impact of substitutes. And lo and behold, Brendan Rodgers, his substitutions garnered the most goals. I think 12 direct goal contributions from, from substitutes this season more than any other manager. So so he's yeah, he's 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 a shrewd cookie, I think, in in the in the tactical mindset. And those character flaws I think have have got better and better. So yeah, well done him. Yeah. If we're talking about management and feel good stories, I suppose you know, the the story of the manager who was once a child, you know, a boy boyhood fan taking over his football club, is right up there. And obviously, in that sense, we're talking about Dean Smith and Aston Villa. I found him hugely impressive at Brentford, where he knew his role in the structure, and I thought worked very well with players who with the greatest respect, weren't at the highest level in terms of quality. Mm. At Villa, you know, obviously his future is going to be linked to that of the club and their ability to, to avoid relegation. How do you think he's done, Seb? Very well under the circumstances. I mean, we've got to, we've got to remember what Villa were when they came back into the Premier League, which was hodgepodge side, built on the fly, a huge amount of transfer activity over the summer and big questions over their best player, like week to week has there has there has, has there been seven days where we haven't talked about Jack Grealish leaving <laughs> either in January or in the summer rightly so he's a fabulously talented player but it's very difficult for a manager to build a side around a talisman of that profile with those kind of question marks it's extremely difficult there are times with Dean Smith's sides where I, where, I, where I question how they're built specifically how he uses Grealish I find I found some of those decisions not bewildering but questionable but I think given what happened the year before with Fulham, who were in quite a similar situation, who went out, who essentially rebuilt a new side, they didn't actually have to, but they did. I think in comparison, where he was having to solidify a squad which consisted of a lot of loans, a lot of players that probably weren't equipped to play in the Premier League anymore, or who were going to be left in the Championship or out of contract, I think he's done tremendously well. And I think if Villa were to survive, and if they were to have the continuity of a proper, more measured summer where they could construct something at a slightly more even even pulse, then I think you'd see really what Dean Smith was as a as a Premier League coach. I like him. Yeah, I think I think part part of it as well is that he's he's managing a side. He, he wants to play fast, exciting, attacking football. That's what he did at Brentford. But it's very difficult to do that for for a team like Villa who don't have the the same resources as those at the top end of the table. Theirs is a survival battle, isn't it? So to, he's had to tweak his own his own style. On the, on the Grealish position, I definitely understand where Seb's coming from. But but personally, I think 
it was smart because Jack Grealish wants to dominate games and in the championship he did. He carried the ball through midfield for fun in that division. It wasn't working in the Premier League in that deeper position. He was he, he wasn't getting enough of the ball. He wasn't able to to influence matches like he did. So what he's done basically is shoved him into a more advanced position whereby he might see the ball less, but when he sees it, he sees it in areas of the pitch where he can go and hurt the opposition. I think that's the reason in there. He, he, he knows that their firepower isn't good enough really at Aston Villa. So he has to get his best player into the final third more. So in a way, Grealish and, and Dean Smith are being quite un, you know selfless there. They're using him in in what is not his best position, really. But but for the team right now, it probably is. Yeah. Another sort of happy return or happy-ish return. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United. You know, I'll put my hands up. I didn't see that as a viable choice in the medium term anyway. They are beginning to build. The Bruno Fernandes signing was a critical one. Is he proving the critics wrong, Seb? Um, I'd stop short of saying that. I'd say that he's removed some of the doubts about him. We've we've covered this before, and, and you, you went after me last time. Ad nauseam. But I, I, the thing is, Mike, is that I, I just I want to see more. What did he go after you for? Like, you know, physically? <laughs> but those, those are the days where we could actually record this in a studio aid, so he could actually go after me physically if you wanted he took, to. He took a swing at you. Is that what, is that what you did? <laughs> I, the thing is, is I accept that things look better now, but you've also got to asterisk that with the recognition that Manchester United are in the privileged position of being able to go out in the middle of a season and sign a £60 million playmaker. It's good news. Manchester United appear to be headed in the right direction under Solskjaer. There is a better idea of what they stand for in the footballing sense. They have a bit more identity. Their transfer strategy seems a bit more cohesive. All good news. By all accounts, they are, I think this is still in process, they are trying to build a a new analytics department, which will be in place for the summer. So there are lots of good stories all across the club, all which suggest a, a level of modernity. Is he a good enough coach to be to make things not just better than they were, which was pretty poor given their standards in, in, over the last sort of over last few decades? Is he the person to actually div- deliver a Premier League title? Can he compete over a 38 game season with a Guardiola, with a Klopp, with a Pochettino? Should he reappear in the league? You know, with an Arteta, should he become? what he's hoped to be at, at Arsenal. And I still don't know the answer to that. And that is Manchester United's objective. So we should probably row back some of the criticism. Yeah, but I'm not ready to sign off as, right, give him a 10-year <laughs> contract, Ed Woodward. Uh, you're a tough man to please, aren't you, Seb? <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> ha, ha, Aid, how long would you give him? Uh, I, I, don't see the, I don't see the urgency. I really don't. I don't think he's done badly enough to deserve... The sack, I, I'll be honest, I, I've been more impressed with him than I was Moyes, Van Gaal and Mourinho, really. I know that Mourinho got them got them into a higher league position, but I see a better identity now. I see better recruitment. I, I actually see a more a more modern tactical brain. I think that, that, that all of those three predecessors were past their best tactically. I, what I'll say in this defence, I don't think he's the perfect manager and there are lots of better better coaches out there, but... In the big games this season, Manchester United have by and large performed pretty well. And in a lot of those contests, he's come up with a tactical curveball that has worked. So I think those critics are not eating their words, but but 
but they should perhaps just look at the bigger picture sometimes and give him give him more of a chance. It's easy to laugh at him or scorn him and say he's not good enough for United, but I don't know. I've said I've said a bit of potential there. Mm. If we're talking about you know the current LMA manager of the year, Chris Wilder, you know to me he's probably the only one who could challenge. Jurgen Klopp for manager of the year title this time around as well. What he's done with Sheffield United, his home clown club, as as we talked about earlier, has been nothing short of extraordinary for me because he's used the tools at his disposal, which is a group of players who have largely come up through the leagues with him and they have a similar mentality. He's used the nature of the club and the ground itself, very old school blue collar football ground, although they play in red and white stripes, of course. <laughs> and also there he, he is to me the epitome of someone who has learned his trade at the lowest level and is applying that knowledge at the highest level. I think he's been extraordinary. Uh, what do you think, Seb? No arguments for me, Mike. I, I love Wilder. I, I love him in press conferences. I love watching his team. I have huge admiration for not only how he's built his side, but what he's been able to do with some of the components within it. If you think about, there's a lot of reclamation projects in there, Mike. So, you know, even people like, you know, John Fleck, Ollie Norwood, Lise Massette. These are players that were not, were not, not succeeding elsewhere, apart from Massette was a sort of a, a forgotten man at Bournemouth, but players who would never have been given an opportunity at, at Premier League level had it not been for Chris Wilder. And the construction of that side... I know what the stereotypes are and the cliches and the synonyms with someone who looks and sounds like Wilder and, you know, a team that comes from a place like Sheffield. They're as advanced a football team as you'll find in the country. You know, they are... Uh, he would be my manager of the year. With all due respect to Jürgen Klopp, I know what he's done and I know what he's about to win. And I accept that he's also, you know, he, he won a European Cup less than a year ago. But in relative terms, what Wilder has achieved is outstanding. It's an absolutely amazing story. I think not only has he been tremendously good for Sheffield United, I think Sheffield United are good for the league. It's a reminder of where good ideas can come from. They don't always have to be imported. They don't always have to come from major European leagues. Sometimes they can just percolate up from, from the non-league in a situation. I remember watching a Chris Wilder team at Oxford when they were mm. in, uh, I think, still in League Two. Uh, it's just, it's a great story. Yeah, 10 years ago, wasn't he in the National League? I mean, his career has been... Yeah, one long upward trajectory, hasn't it? He's, he's succeeded pretty much everywhere. He's a proper manager. I think it's not outlandish to believe that when the moment comes for Gareth Southgate to leave the England job, that Wilder should be among the leading candidates. That's a great I think he, yeah. he has to be on the shortlist because tactically he's very, very smart indeed. And he is forward thinking, innovative, and I think he would be a wonderful fit when the time comes. His in-game management, again, is excellent. Yeah, he's someone whose character was formed in adversity. You know, early on in his career, I think he devoted six years of his life to Halifax Town, which then went out of business. When he was at Northampton, he had his credit cards refused <laughs> at the supermarket checkout wow. because he hadn't been paid for three months. Mm. When you've got someone of that stature and, and someone with that real world experience, if you've got 
that and align it to what you talked about there, aid the, the technical knowledge mm. and the tactical wisdom, you've got a pretty special package. And given that, I think he's a good, a very strong 8 out of 10. I give the same to Brendan Rodgers, simply because I'm hugely impressed by the way that he has adapted to a new club and maybe learned the lessons of the past. Seven for Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and sixes for Graham Potter and Dean Smith. Uh, what about you guys? I would bump Brendan down to a seven just because I agree with Adrian. I think there are times when he can't quite get out of his own way tactically. Six for Potter and six for Smith is about right. Solskjaer, I'll be charitable. I'll go with a seven just because they're, they're, they're still, there are still question marks <laughs> for me. But I, while there, I can't fault nine, ten for him. I and and actually, let me let me echo what Adrian said. Like, I'd love to see him managing them one day. I don't know whether he fits into that FA community. I don't know whether he's truly a component. I think he's a bit more individualistic than that. But from an acumen standpoint, he would warrant an interview without question. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think Potter seven for his boldness. Obviously, you know, we need we need him to 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 be to have more tangible success. I guess. Seven for, for Dean Smith, seven for Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. I can, can't really split those guys. Wilder has to be an eight. Uh, and for me, Rogers, I think you shouldn't underestimate what he did with Liverpool, taking them to the brink of the title, what he did at Celtic, and now what he's doing with, with Leicester. He has to be an eight and a half for me. Good old. One international manager who is standing down after eight years in charge of Northern Ireland, Michael O'Neill. He's done so to concentrate on Stoke. That's pretty much inevitable, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I, I, I mean, <laughs> given given the sort of how short tenures tend to be in the EFL, Northern Ireland might want to just keep the, keep the vacancy <laughs> open. <laughs> by the time international football comes around again, they might he might be able to take over again. No, he, he did his time, he's brilliant for them, and he translated it really effectively, I thought. Into a difficult environment at, at, at the Bet Three Six Five, you know, with the that was a dressing room that had problems. It was an imbalanced squad, and and he kind of turned it around. Results were much much better under him. He simplified the tactical approach. So no, he's he's doing a really really sound job. And and the the key now, unfortunately, because Stoke want to get back in the Premier League. Unfortunately, I think unless they're in a promotion battle next season, whenever that starts, he'll be under pressure. You guys surprised he didn't get a better job, with all due respect to Stoke? Because it is a bit of a, not basket case club, but it's not in the best of health. Um, yeah. And given what he... But Northern achieved, Ireland and Northern Ireland, aren't they? That's yeah, but look what he achieved. Yeah. I mean, he, he, I I mean with, with, the, with those players, and again, all due respect to them, but that team should not, be, should not have been qualifying for a European Championship. He did an amazing. Uh, what a what a body of work that was. It's just I, I just I just assumed that he would be in line for a kind of um, a, a lower level Premier League gig if the opportunity came around. But 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 only but which ones? I mean, probably Burnley is the fit, isn't it? Because you you say similar style of football. It's just I get, Premier League chairman. You know what they're like. Yeah. So they just they want sexy coaches, isn't it? And Michael O'Neill, for all his qualities, isn't isn't a sexy manager, is he? He's, he's, he's Pragmatic. No, that's a fact. And he's efficient. You you mentioned, Seb, the the European Championships. For our tournament focus in this edition, Aid, you've chosen an absolute horror show, (laughs) uh, Euro 88. Um, Probably England's most most notorious performance since... Uh. 
Oh, you know, United States in 1950, <laughs> I think, probably the World Cup then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no wins. A squad which ended up squabbling with itself. You know, Brian Robson fell out pretty spectacularly with Peter Shilton, as I remember. Yeah. They were pretty awful, weren't Oh, they? England were rubbish, yeah. I mean, the, 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 but they had a great squad. Like, Shilton, Sansom, Tony Adams was there. Midfield of Rob's, Brian Robson, Glenn Hoddle. I mean... That's a, that's a dream midfield it, it, on paper. Barnes, Waddle, Lineker, Beersley. That's a great players, kind of at their peak as well. And it just, it didn't work for them. They obviously, they, they went down against Ray Houghton and, and Republic of Ireland, didn't they? Who themselves deserve much credit for their competition. So many leaders come out of that island team, like your Hutons and McCarthy's and Quinn, Paul McGrath, John Aldridge, to name just a few. So... Yeah, no, England were, were hopeless. But the, the reason this stands in my mind, I was, I was 13, so I was really hooked on football at the time. And it was the Dutch. And it was the it was the team, you know, Hullet with his big hair and, and Van Basten, who, by the way, he, he won the Golden Boot with five goals. Only two other players, only two other players in the tournament scored more than one and only got two apiece. So it really was a kind of one-man tournament, <laughs> Euro 88, but the two moments that stand out for me from Van Basten were from the classic semi-final against West Germany, who had the greatest kit of all time. You know, I'm a big fan of the kits. I think the Dutch hadn't beaten Germany in over 30 years in a competitive match. They were 1-0 down, and then they came back. Koeman penalty, and then the goal that Van Basten scored. I don't know if you got it in your mind. Yeah, yeah. Little, lovely through ball, and on the slide, he just hooks it, doesn't he? Pass the keeper into that far corner. It was it was a, a a goal of real beauty, but of course it 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 didn't match the the goal he scored in the final against against the Soviet Union. Which I, there's no never been a better goal has there in a in a major cup final surely club or international level. I mean, can you think of one? And and just as a little personal note, I was lucky enough to play for England schoolboys two years later at the same Olympic Stadium in Munich which was wonderful with its webbed roof and open-air sort of bowl. And we played there against Germany, and there was 55,000 there, which was a heck of a crowd. And before the game, we went and walked on the pitch, which was immaculate. And the only thing I had in my mind was, I need to go to the area <laughs> of the pitch where Van Basten scored that goal. I need to stand there and see what he saw. And it was just, I was like, wow, what a goal that was. So, yeah, it was, um, yes, shocking for England, for Bobby Robson, for all those star players. But, but wow, for the Dutch to win on German soil was a bit special. Yeah, I hope you didn't try to emulate that um, uh, spectacular. You did end up in traction, mate. Not, not, not with my right foot. No, <laughs> I might have tried it with my left, but not yeah, that, my right. See, that was a strange tournament because... You know, this is going to sound terrible, but for that tournament, covering England was a real trial because it was all, it was just the negativity came at you, you know, like a, a hailstorm on a pretty daily basis. And we in Fleet Street looked across to our mates from the same papers who were covering the Republic of Ireland, and they were having a ball. <laughs> you know, there was more than one or two Guinnesses taken. <laughs> The, the team interacted with the press brilliantly. There were lifetime friendships formed. And it was weird because in that game, you know, when we had the, 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 you know, the England defeat to the Irish, 
I actually felt, look, I'm actually writing the wrong story here. I should be with the other guys. And that's really, really a strange one. Seb, when you look back at that tournament, managers are, are basically, you know, stand or fall by decisions. And I thought in that first game against the Republic, Bobby Robson chose Neil Webb, who, you know, to be to his great credit, was a, a really good attacking midfield player at yeah. the time. But he chose him over Glenn Hoddle. Now, I could never get my head around that and still can't. So... I suppose in Bobby Robson's defence, he would point you in the direction of the, the game against the Soviet Union when Hoddle, Hoddle gives that ball away. I think it's a... I, I mean, I'm almost tempted not to attribute it to an individual manager because this has been a blind spot. This was a blind spot for English football for, for decades, that distrust of Hoddle-like figures. Right, how many caps did he get for England in total? Sort of, what, 50, 59? Is that about right for Glenn Hoddle? Mm. Um, yeah, about that, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it's kind of... English football wasn't really built originally to accommodate someone like him. So I can kind of understand that you sort of, you don't, you know, against a team like the Republic of Ireland, you don't necessarily want the temptation to kind of, to stack up your hardworking, obdurate opponents over someone like Hoddle. I can't understand that. In hindsight, like, right, it doesn't bear any kind of scrutiny now because we know what Hoddle was and we know what he was capable of. And even for younger generations, they can just go on YouTube and see what a player he was. But it's a difficult thing. And um, Mike, I, I wanted to ask a question just while I've got the chance. Was that, for you, from a press standpoint, was that the most negative point with England, 88? Yeah, the build-up to 90 was pretty fraught yeah. as well, which actually, I suppose, as you go on, you, you, you get to know international managers. And with Bobby, in that intervening two years, I would just occasionally see him around the place. Funny enough, I remember seeing him at Watford, queuing for a ticket at Watford once and having a long conversation with him. Not about football per se, but just about life. And what struck me, that he, he used to take his dad, Philip, to, to Wembley. And you know, he was so proud of his dad. He was a, quite a small figure with, with big sort of horn ring glasses and, and flat caps. And you know, his dad, as he used to tell me, you know, he worked in a seam getting coal out of a seam which was 27 inches high you know deep underneath the sea and so I actually got to you know you get to know the person rather than the professional if you know what I mean and that was why I was so happy from a you know a, a personal point of view that he did so well in Italy and he basically got rid of all the negativity that had preceded it so I suppose you know that's 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 probably why actually at that time covering in them wasn't good and, and when we went through a stage you know we you know we, we've had recent times probably you know before gareth southgate turned up where it was it was camp paranoia and i don't think it's a coincidence that the tournaments i really enjoyed covering i didn't cover just england i covered the tournament and other teams other nations other players and i think that's that's important so that's not, not quite my thought for the day, but we're, we're on that part of the programme now, sort of winding up. Hey, is there anything you want to get off the chest? <laughs> uh, so much, so much I want to get off the chest. No, it was just, uh, if, if only to wind Seb up, <laughs> Harry Kane. I just want to put that thought out there. Harry Kane, what does he do? He's coming to that crossroads of his career. He let slip, didn't he, that, that it's not beyond the realms of possibility he might leave Spurs. We know that United... Would love to have him. My thought for the day is, where should he go? 
when he leaves Spurs. I think he will leave Spurs. I genuinely do. Where should he go? I don't think he should be Manchester United. I think, I think he should probably go to a global giant that that wins leagues. And I don't think Manchester United are that. He could maybe help them on the road to winning trophies again. But I don't think that's the right move for Harry Kane. I'm just going to plant the little seed out there. Where, where should he go? Okay, Seb. Well, that's <laughs> put you into the deepest throes of depression. What are you going to oh, come I'm going to completely ignore all of that because <laughs> I, I, I can see Adrian's smug little face across Skype as he says all of it. <laughs> don't, don't don't start talking about Aubameyang to Chelsea, please. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say um, when we're recording this, the Newcastle takeover is still subject to Premier League ratification, and I just want to take my hat to some of the journalists that have been reporting on those issues and the morality behind them because. They take dog's abuse doing that. And I'm not going to mention names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but just yeah, full of admiration for some of that because I, I, I think to to report on things like that in this climate with tribalism being what it is and with the the sort of the global nature of the game as complicated as it is, I think it it, it needs tremendous oversight, but also a fair degree of bravery because, um, you know, being subject to some of the things I've seen online is, is no fun whatsoever. So uh, well done to those guys. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll finish actually on a Tottenham theme. Now, I don't mind admitting that I would have done the same as Eric Dyer, who went into the stand at White Hart Lane to confront an abuser, who, as usual, seems to have got off scot-free. I know the FA have to keep up appearances, but haven't they got better things to do at this time of crisis than to consider banning Dyer? If he gets anything other than a strongly worded letter reminding him of his responsibilities, the law will be an ass and the FA will lose more credibility. Thanks to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast and please stay safe out there. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.